Be seated, maybe seated. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Tanya, leading us out. And great song, Doug and team. Wonderful worship. We do believe God for his good plans, future and the hope that he's given to us. I hope you can say a hearty amen to that. You turn to the passage, Ephesians 4, we are there, and Chris read from extended passage in that chapter, but I call your attention to the great hope of the church found in Paul's benediction in chapter 3. He says, now to him who is able, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He's able, right? And what is our heart's desire? I hope it is this church. To Him, to Him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, the people of God said, He must increase, we must decrease. May that be true. Now look if you would, Ephesians 4, we are in a series of sermons here. We come for a combined service. And again, so grateful for all of you here today and those that are serving in various other places. But we have taken these Sundays to combine together to be reminded of very important truth. And that is that as a church... We are to be more than a crowd. As a church, we are to be a family, and we share life together. Life together. And so in the book of Ephesians, as I'm sure many of you know, it is the great epistle the, that Paul gave about the glory of the church. And in the first three chapters, he just reminds us of the wonders of the grace of God. The wonders of the grace of God of bringing lost sinners to life, life from the dead. And then allowing us to share in the inheritance with all of the saints here on earth and those that are in glory. What incredible calling we have, right? We have this amazing calling. It's all of grace. And yet it is real that we are this body, the church, part of the family of God. And then Paul, as he is very wont to do, he wants to take us up into the heavenlies to understand our identity, but we're not living there yet, right? And he has a way of bringing us down to earth with heaven in our heart so that we'll know on earth as the people of heaven how we are to live out our responsibilities. And he does that in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And as I've thought about this season for us as a church family, this time of Beginning again, time as we have been through challenges regarding 
in our society around the world with COVID, the virus that's been there. We still struggle with that. We pray for our brothers and sisters here and others that are struggling, caregivers. That virus is still with us. But you know, there's uh, some other viruses that are out there as well. Some of them not physical in nature, spiritual, emotional. And in the midst of that, we need to remember that our Lord is not worried one bit. (laughs) The Holy Trinity has not been called into emergency session. Our God reigns. And He is our God. And there is no power on this earth to be compared with the power that works in us. Power that brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus Christ. We want that power not just to be terminology, words. We want to be reality as we live for Christ in this age, this time in the kingdom to which he's brought us. Now Paul's great concern, you'll see, in this life together is that we walk worthy We walk worthy of the Lord. So look, if you would, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul begins this big transition from our calling to our conduct. And he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then Paul, through the rest of This section of the letter, chapter 4, primarily in our Bibles, he gives these four great principles that are united and combined to express this worthy walk. What does it look like for people to walk worthy of the calling in Christ? What is this life together? Well, as you can see on the wall behind us, we're going to be talking about life together in unity, life together in purpose, life together in freedom, life together in love. Those are four great qualities that are to be expressed by the people of God as they share life together. Unity, purpose, freedom, love. Now last week we began this this series of messages and we looked at what Paul had to say about walking together in unity. And so let's just remind ourselves some of what Paul says is to be this This expression of this unity in life together. Verses 2 and 3, he talks about this expression. What is the expression of recognizing, embracing this life together? It means that you walk with all humility and gentleness. Terms used to describe Jesus. He used to describe himself gentle and lowly. That we walk with patience. That word patience means to be long-tempered with each other. And we literally are bearing with one another in love. 
How many of you know that it's wonderful to be family, <laughs> but being family has its challenges as well? Anybody ever experienced that? For our to be unity, there needs to be this humility and gentleness. This is meekness. It's not weakness. It's strength. But it's under control. That's the expression. But now notice, what is this essence? What's the essence of this unity? The unity that we're talking about is not just a unity that we are trying to conjure up. <laughs> that we're, tr we're trying somehow by our efforts and even by being nice to each other most of the time to, to try to bring this about. No, no. I want you to see what is the essence of this unity. The essence of this unity, the unity that we have is the creation and the demonstration of God. If we look to ourselves for unity, we're done. It is a power greater than us that creates this unity and demonstrates this unity. And Paul said in verses 4 through 6 that this unity is a creation of God himself. Did you notice that? I love this. Verse 4, he says, there's this one spirit. Verse 5, there's one Lord. Verse 6, there is one Father. What is he saying? That the community of the church is a reflection of the community of the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Eternally in communion one with another. And God has determined and ordained that his family is going to express the unity community that exists in the Godhead. Isn't this amazing? We've, we've been called into something really big. The unity of the church is the creation of the Trinity, the tri-unity. And the unity of the church is not just the creation of God himself... It is the demonstration of God himself. You see, the purpose, the calling of the church, Paul says earlier in this letter, is to demonstrate to the very spiritual beings, the angels in heaven, demonic forces around us, that there is a God who is glorious and powerful and gracious. God wants us to be on display, not so that people will see us. We're not the sun, we're the moon. He is the light of the world. We're the light reflector. <laughs> but we can only do that in unity. Jesus said it's this unity that he prayed for in the as he prayed to the Father the night before his crucifixion, that they might be one. As you and I are one, that the world may what? Know that you have sent me. I want to tell you something. There's a lot of arguments 
that can be made and we don't have to hide our faces to give an answer for the hope that is in us. We have a, a faith that it does make sense. And this word is trustworthy. But friends, let me tell you something. As a Christian, you're a sermon in shoes. And the greatest evidence of a living God is a person in whom that God is alive. And that, my friend, cannot be answered. The Lord wants desires for His church to be that light in the darkness. It's a demonstration of God Himself. Now notice, how big a demonstration is it? Look in verses 4 through 6. Seven times the Lord uses the word one. One. Verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Who is over all and through all and in all. My friend, when God says the unity... Is created by the three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then when he says that unity is sevenfold, what's he saying? This unity is of God and it is a demonstration of God. It is to be a complete unity. Amen. Let's notice this one, this oneness. What is this sevenfold unity? Now remember, it's not something where you work up. This is the unity that God has given. What is this sevenfold unity? Notice, there's one body. We belong to one body. Verse 4. There's one body. The church. The church is Christ's body. Chapter 1. Verse 21 says, His body, which is the church. Everyone who has faith in Jesus is a part of His church. His body. There is one body. And that one body is not determined by one building or one site or one gathering, one location. It is the expression of of God himself who's made us one. There's one body. The unity exists in one body. It's a unity that we belong to one body. It is a unity we share in one spirit. Notice. There's one spirit. One spirit. Every believer possesses the Holy Spirit of God. Paul says in Romans, if you do not have the Spirit of God, you're not of Him. You're not of His. There is something that unites us, and it's not even a thing. It's a someone who unites us. And that one is the Spirit. We've been born by one Spirit. When we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we are born again, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. By one spirit were you all baptized into one body. Every single believer has received the baptism, the baptism by the Spirit. <laughs> My friends, I've always thought I'm a little, I feel a little bad for people who are constantly, constantly praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You already have it, <laughs> it's in your bank account, believer. You already have it. Don't pray for something you already have. Now you need to be filled with the Spirit. Amen. One baptism, many fillings and endowments, and we need to live in that filling. But there's one baptism by one Spirit. There's a unity we belong to, one body. There's a unity we share, one Spirit. There is a unity we cherish. What is it? One hope. One hope. What is this hope? It is the hope of Christ's return. And make sure you remember, brothers and sisters, when the word hope is used in the New Testament, it doesn't mean wish. It means certainty. The word hope in the New Testament for a believer just refers to an as of yet unexperienced reality. It's already done. What did we sing? God said it. I believe it. It's done. And reality is whether you believe it or not, it's done. Amen. And Christ is returning. That is his last promise in the Bible. Behold, I'm coming quickly. What's the last prayer of the Bible? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Come. Have any of you been feeling lately as you've kind of watched the news and listened? Have you, any of you been thinking, this would be a good day, Lord? <laughs> How about now? But that's not up to us. Paul says, we are watching for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13. Notice this unity. We submit to one Lord. One Lord. Who is this Lord? Where does he live? What church does he pastor? <laughs> There's one Lord. There's only one Lord. It's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A few years ago, Susan and I were able to go to Rome, a group from the church, went as well. And I, for, since I was a kid and was fascinated by history and Roman history, I've seen pictures of this building, one of the wonders of the ancient world, the Pantheon, the Pantheon in Rome. It was built in the first century A.D. And 
It is a marvel. <laughs> you, you walk into it. It has this huge dome in which there, there's no metal support. It's just the weight of all the stones holds the roof together. And there is a huge opening at the top, the oculus. And as the sun moves around the Italian sky, the beam of light will come down on various parts of the wall of that temple. And they put into the temple little niches where there were idols of the greatest gods of Rome. And so it was the pantheon, all the gods. <laughs> and all the leading gods of Rome were there and the sun would fall upon them. But my friend, <laughs> there was no niche for Jesus. No niche for Jesus. He was rejected by men. He left a little group of believers behind when he went back. He gave them a mission to tell others about him, make him known, live in love. There was no niche for Jesus in that first century, but you know what I love? Less than 300 years later, the Pantheon became a church. <laughs> and believers in Jesus Christ were meeting there. I want to tell you, Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? There's one Lord. Only one to whom we bow. One Lord. We're united in that we have Submission to one Lord, but we also have a unity as we hold one faith. One faith. Now notice verse 5. One Lord, one faith. Now understand this does not mean your personal faith. It doesn't mean your personal faith. It means objective faith. It means what is believed. It means the body of truth. <laughs> I, I loved the song that Doug led us in singing with the choir this morning. What? We believe. And we announced in song the things that we believe. That is our faith. That's the objective faith. The body of truth. The essential beliefs. There is a faith that has been once and for all delivered to God's people, according to Jude. This faith, listen carefully now. It is this faith that at the same time unites and divides. The faith, holding to the faith at the same time, unites and divides. This body of truth divides. It divides truth from error. It is the message of God which separates what is true from what is falsehood and error. 
And so to hold to that faith means that there will be a division at times from what is unbelief. I remember several years ago, one of the services, there was a group of people, a group of people, 19 of them asked if they could see me after the service. We met right down here. I didn't know who they were. And then they introduced themselves, told me they were from a church. I won't name the church. And I said, why are you here? And they said, we don't know what to do. And we, we just thought we'd come ask you. <laughs> okay. No pressure. <laughs> I said, well, what, what do you mean? Our pastor denies the faith. He doesn't believe in the virgin birth. He doesn't believe the Bible's the Word of God. He doesn't believe in the testimony of the Old Testament. When it refers to the flood, it refers to Noah, it refers to Solomon, others. He, he doesn't believe these things. He says he doesn't believe these things. But we don't know what to do because we've been there for years. Our, we've got family that's been there for years. We don't know what to do. What do you think we should do? <laughs> And I was grateful I had someone to quote. <laughs> Always good. But I was able to quote from something I heard a faithful man of God now with the Lord, Adrian Rogers, say. When I was one time at a pastor's conference at Ridgecrest Camp in, near Asheville. Here's what that man said. Listen carefully. He said, it is better... To be divided by truth than to be united in error. Boom. Went to my heart. It's still there. Better to be divided by truth than united by error. You know what I said to them? I said, you know there are things that are worth whatever it takes. And it's better to be divided by truth than united by error. And you have a pastor who does not believe the truth. I said, you need to pray about that. Well, they did. <laughs> not long after, the pastor was released from that position you say do I feel guilty about that not that much <laughs> not a moment matter of fact I tell you you ever hear me spout that kind of heresy you will know something's wrong with me but you get me off this platform because there are things more important than any man or woman, and that is the testimony of God Almighty in Christ. Amen. My mom used to say it to me when I'd go fibbing to her. She would say, listen here, young man, when this old world are rocking, the truth's going to stand. 
I didn't know exactly what that meant, but I know she was serious about it. <laughs> but I want to tell you, friends, listen, this world is rocking. And it's rocking more and more all the time. But don't you doubt it. This truth is going to stand. And that's what we unite on. You cannot have a mixture of truth and error. This faith unites us and divides us at the same time. But thank God, this faith unites us. Unites us. What is this? What is this faith that unites us? You see, it's, it's not pressing into non-essentials. This is, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the absolute bedrock teaching of our faith. That is what unites us. What is that? Well, he tells us. Notice. He says there is this that unites us. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all. That is the essentials of the faith. That is what unites us. And we are not to allow ourselves to divide over non-essentials, but the absolute essentials that there is a God, the God of the Bible. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is one Lord and Savior only, Jesus Christ, virgin-born Son of God. There is one revelation of God, the written Word of God. There is salvation in no other name. The one who died has risen from the dead. He has ascended and He is coming back. Those are the essentials of faith. On those... We have incredible unity. It's sad when we have division over non-essentials. October 1st through the 4th of 1529. Yes, I'm going to take you to 1529. I wasn't there, but I have read about it. The Reformation... That light out of the darkness of religion that sprang forth in the early days of the 16th century. There were leaders that came up. Of course, the great one Martin Luther in Germany. But also the Reformation had swept over into Switzerland. And beyond. But in Switzerland, the leader there, a man by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. They had some differences in their understanding of Scripture. And so, Prince Philip of Hesse, who was a, one of the leaders in Germany at that time, Hesse being in central Germany thought there was this need for unity among the, the brothers and sisters because they were being threatened by invasion from the Holy Roman Empire led by Philip V. And so, Philip of Hesse invited Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, 
to have a discussion at his castle in Marburg. And they met for four days. And they came up that there were 15 key beliefs that Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli agreed upon. But one difference had to do with the Lord's Supper. And literally came down, listen, not just to one difference, but one word. The word is. When Jesus said, this is my body, did he mean that he really was there, his presence was there in the wine and in the bread? Or did he mean it as a symbol for his believers to remember him? Luther absolutely said he is in the cup and he is in the bread. His reality is there. Zwingli said, no, no. He says he is, the, this is my body just like he says I am the door. I am the good shepherd. It's symbolic. And Luther, great as he was, would not hear of it. He took a piece of chalk and wrote on top of that wood table, this is my body. And then he left saying to his companions, we are not of the same spirit. And the divide happened between those who aligned with Luther, the Lutherans, and those who aligned with Zwingli came to be understood and called the Reformed churches. That division lasted for now 500 years. I understand and I'm not saying that people get red in the face to this day over the word is. <laughs> but let me tell you this. We need to be very careful that we don't go beyond and insist on a level of unity where there is the space by God's Spirit's wisdom to understand we may not see all things perfectly clear. We do know these essentials, but my friend, there are some things in the word that are a little hard to understand. <laughs> Not absolutely clear. We need to heed the counsel of Augustine 1,700 years ago. You know what that great man said? He said this is, should be our spirit. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, let there be charity. Love. In the essentials... There must be unity. One body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. We must hear the words of Paul. I, I 
I press this, my friends, because I'm here to tell you. In the day and age in which we live, in the culture which is so contrary and counter to all that believers, true believers in Jesus, hold. In a day when there is persecution and struggle, not just here, but beyond our imaginations around the world by brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be very clear and very careful that we don't unnecessarily divide ourselves over non-essentials. We need a confessing church. Whatever the sign says outside, we need churches that confess this faith and hold to this faith and share this faith. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 6. Now here he's not talking about the baptism, the mode of baptism. He's not talking about sprinkling, pouring, immersion. That's not the point. The word baptism, baptizo, means to dip. It means to immerse. But that's not Paul's point here. When he says one baptism, what he's talking about here, it is what and who that baptism identifies with us with. It identifies us with Christ. It is a baptism that identifies us with the one who died and was buried and rose again. It's that one baptism that identifies us with Jesus. It is a symbol and sign of someone's faith. One baptism. It's a baptism in the name of the Lord. And we exalt one God and Father. The same Father, the same God, we share the same family in unity. In unity. It seems to me, if we have the same Father, then we're what? Brothers and sisters. Life together in unity... But it must be a healthy unity. A unity that has a purpose. And I'm just going to open this up for a few minutes. Some of you scared to death. Okay. I want you to notice that this unity is a healthy unity. It is a, it is a unity that has a purpose associated with it. And it is a oneness because the church has a common mission, a purpose to testify of Christ. I remember in high school, our coach, our basketball coach, and it was a big deal in my town. Our town, 22,000 people, largest high school gym in the world, still is, 9,300. It was a big deal, basketball. And our coach, Coach Tag, got tired of players showing up for tryouts who had been couch potatoes all offseason. So you know what he did? Before you could even try out for the team, before you could try out, you had to be able to run one mile in six minutes or less, and you had to be able to run two miles 
in less than 13 minutes. No problem for me whatsoever. <laughs> yes, piece of cake. No. no, we're talking about sucking some serious air here, okay? <laughs> but I made it. Why? Because the coach was tired the first two or three games of the season. We were so out of shape, we'd get beat in the second half. He wanted us to be ready. We're a team, 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 team. But the purpose of the team is to win. There's a purpose here. And so the Lord is telling us here that he has a unity, a unity that is a unity in diversity. There is a diversity among this unity. We're not talking about everyone being cookie cutter. Notice what Paul says here. He says, you've received this grace of this calling. You've received this grace of personal salvation. And you've received this grace to be part of the body of Christ. Now notice this, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's given us a diversity. There's a unity, but there's also individuality. There's a diversity without division. People can be different. <laughs> Some more than others. <laughs> but diversity strengthens the body when it's the right kind of diversity, not disunity. It's diversity without division. And God says He has called us all to this one body, but He's given us all different callings, different abilities. He's given us these grace gifts. Grace gifts with which to serve Him together. We're not all having the same gifts. He's dispensed gifts as He wills. But it's all for Him. It's all for Him. I just read this to you that Chris read because it's, to me, so amazing. What do we know about these gifts being given to us? What, how, how did that happen? What is a gift? A gift is a divine ability for service in the kingdom of the Lord, in the body of Christ. That's what it is. It's a divinely given ability for service. The Bible says we've all received gifts, but they're all different gifts. But notice, who is it that gives us the gift? Verse number 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now he's quoting Psalm 68. In Psalm 68, it's an image of Jehovah God. Going up to Mount Zion. He's, he's coming in triumph over the enemies. He's gone and freed captives. And he's brought them back to his hill, Mount Zion. And he's sharing the spoils of victory. With the captives that he set free. <laughs> now do you see what he says? In saying he ascended what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all 
the heavens, that he might fill all things. Who is this gift giver? It's the one who descended from heaven's glory. The one who, being in the form of God, did not consider it something to be grasped. This equality with God. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the very form, the nature of a servant. He became made in the likeness of men. This Jesus, God incarnate, having become a human, became a servant. How much of a servant? To death and death of the cross. And what did God do? (laughs) For his beloved son. He raised him from the dead. In glory and power. He ascended back to heaven. (laughs) Wouldn't you have liked to have been there the day Jesus came back? Can you imagine? He ascended back to heaven. And having ascended to heaven, he said, I will send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit came to indwell God's people. And in his coming, he gave them different abilities on how to serve him. Friend, I want to tell you something. It is an incredible thing to recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ has not only saved you, And made you part of his forever family. But he gave you gift or gifts with your name on it. Or them. So that you could serve him. What a God we serve, right? And what is the glory? The glory doesn't go to the church. The glory doesn't go to say, hey, look at my gift. (laughs) Where does the glory go? To the one who gave it. All the glory. What did we sing earlier? What? All the glory goes where? It goes to Jesus. Let's give him glory this morning. Let's stand together. Our heads are bowed just for a moment. Dear friend. Isn't he a wonderful Savior? Isn't he glorious? And friend, I will tell you, this Jesus who descended, he came for one purpose. Why? He will save his people from their sins. He came to seek and to save the lost. My friend, he has saved you today. All who come to him are received into his family, forgiven, redeemed, set free, made part of his eternal kingdom, his glorious church. How many of you experienced that? Would you say amen? Amen. And dear friend, if you would like to pray with someone about your need of Christ, please, as we sing, come. Myself, one of our elders, our prayer team, be glad to pray with you. But friends... All the glory goes to Jesus. Amen. May that be our desire as a church family in unity. In earnest service. In humility.
humility. May our heart's desire be, let the glory go where it belongs to Jesus.